0: All right. Well, would someone like the starters or something that jumped out at you? I've got a couple things. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah. And is it, is it really yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the, the question is, is this on page one ninety three? His 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 chart there, um, and then what's called the chiasm at the top. And you you know we've talked about that before, even a couple of years back when we did when we did an overview of the entire Bible. In a couple of years, we talked a lot about chiasms. Um, I, I personally think it's very significant. And here's the reason why. Because the point of all of Scripture, and specifically all of the Gospels, is to get you to the death of Jesus. And he says this. And the way he says it, I've actually heard it this way before. But it's very significant. The Gospels are but introductions to the Passion narrative. That's all it is. I mean, even the birth narrative, is just an inter- it's a long introduction to the Passion narrative. The Passion of Jesus, so his betrayal... Really, his from Palm Sunday on, everything that happens in that week is uber uber significant to the life of the Christian and to the life of Jesus. Okay, so you can't emphasize enough the passion and death of Christ. And uh, uh, you know, picking is always a loser's game. But if you if someone forced you to say, what oftentimes Lutherans will say, the resurrection is more important. I would actually argue that the crucifixion of Jesus is the most important event in his life. And the resurrection is is a close second, but it's not the thing. Or to say it another way, you may have been here when uh, Drs. Nagel and Foyerhan were here, and someone asked the question from the back. This was when we sat over in WBC. We all came back here. There was a Saturday seminar where they led it to talk about liturgy and and, um, liturgical space and design and all of that stuff. And someone said should we have a cross with a body on it? And you may remember Nagel's answer was, do you want a Savior from your sins or a Savior from your mortality? That's very significant. You can can be in the presence of Christ without your body, which is what the resurrection affirms. right? When Jesus rises from the dead, what that says is, I got my body back and so will you. But the death on Good Friday means all of your sins are wiped clean and you will be in the presence of Christ someday. So it was very intriguing when he says, Do you want someone who saves you from your sins or someone who saves you from mortality? You really want to save you from your sins. But the gift of immortality, you will live forever, um, is like an added bonus. So it's very I mean, especially coming from someone who is somewhat reformed. I mean he's not a Catholic, he's not Orthodox, he's not a Lutheran, where the emphasis is primarily upon the resurrection of Jesus. Growing up as a kid, my grandma used to say, the reason we don't have crucifixes is because Jesus rose from the dead. That's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. But that's kind of a common understanding. The emphasis is upon the resurrection. Good Friday, in fact if you if you look across the spectrum, many churches won't even celebrate the events of Holy Week. They won't, they won't have midday prayer. Monday, Thursday, maybe. Good Friday, rarely. That's a little too morbid. Holy Saturday, for sure. You won't have that. But Easter Sunday is the day. When for a Lutheran, it's the whole package. It's Holy Thursday and really Good Friday through Easter Sunday. That's why it's called the Triduum, the three days. Um, so you can't say one is more important than the other, but at the end of days, one means something different than the other. You're saved from your sins on Friday. You're saved from losing your body forever on Sunday. Everyone understand, understand that? So it's intriguing, at least to me, that he picks the death of Jesus as the thing. So to get back to the original question, I think it's very important that he uses this diagram here and this chiasm, because what he shows is... Uh, one, all of Scripture is always pointing towards something else. And two, there's meaning and significance behind the passion of Christ. It's not just, as he says, an accident. But th- there's an intended purpose behind all of this. Holly, go ahead. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, he, he makes a connection between the giving of the Holy Supper with all of his disciples. Disciples just means the learners or the followers of Jesus who are his faithful at that point. And then he, he translates that to the event at the cross where the women are the only ones who stick by. And he says, I think he says, they see his body broken and his blood outpoured. I, here's, here's the reason. He goes on to say that down here. Yeah, he says scenes where he goes through the scenes here. Um, the second and eleventh scenes are Eucharistic scenes. Okay, so he makes the connection. It's, it's, it's a bit more vague, but here's the thing. It's because he's not using John's gospel because I don't think the piercing of his side is as significant in Mark's gospel as it is in John's, which could be the reason why. But I agree. The piercing of the side, that is the Eucharist. Because you remember in John's Gospel, there's no institution of the sacraments. Every other Gospel has an institution. Baptize people this way, give the supper this way. Except for John's Gospel. But the great scene in John's Gospel, this is really the climax of the crucifixion. When the soldier comes by and they pierce his side. John's the only one who goes into detail here. What comes out? Blood and water. That's the Holy Supper and Holy Baptism. So for John, that's the institution of the supper. Or, only... Well, the other Mark may reference it, but it's only in detail that blood and water come out in John's gospel, which is I think that's why he's doing it. Can I say one thing about Mark at the very beginning? I I don't know if as a Lutheran you'd fully agree. You may, or maybe maybe you don't care. I don't know. I do. He says at the very beginning that Mark is the first gospel, and actually. I would disagree. I think historically it can be proven that Matthew is the first gospel um, for a multitude of reasons. I don't think Mark is the first gospel. Now, this is, it's, you may say it's a minor point. I actually think it's a bigger point because I think Mark actually gets his theology from Matthew. And, and this is very, it's very simple if you just look at just the grammar. Matthew's gospel begins with, remember how it starts, the very first verses? I'll read it to you just so I remember how it starts. It starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. But the word there for book, that's good, is biblos in the Greek, which is translated as Bible. So actually this should read, the Bible of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's intention is, is to write the book on the life of Jesus. That's his intention. He's writing the final word on the life and death of Jesus Christ. What happens is, as you, as you come to find out, it doesn't, it, it doesn't answer the questions that everyone is asking, because not everyone's a Jew. <laughs> so there are other questions being asked. So then you have Luke's Gospel, addressed to the Gentiles. You have Matthew, or You have Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel, addressed to different scenarios. John's Gospel is addressed to the Gnostics, who say, the body means nothing. And John begins with, the Word became flesh. Okay? But this, I think, is meant to be the culminating work on the person of Christ. What happens is, it ends up not answering every question, so other people have to write. But I think we want to give Matthew priority over the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Okay? That doesn't mean he didn't learn stuff from St. Peter. I actually think that's quite intriguing and probably true. But I do think he gets a majority of his work, which is why Mark doesn't go into the detail. See, he, he reads it a different way. Peterson says there's not a lot of detail, so Matthew comes along and adds the detail. I think from church history, you can see Matthew gives all the detail, and Mark says, we know that. Now let me write it so you can understand it. In a very terse, quick kind of way. I mean, Mark's Gospel is all about immediately that must come up 30 or 40 times immediately marks always moving you along okay which is why you know pastor Nelson doing the study on mark is was actually I mean that's a great call because one no one understands mark I don't think no one talks about mark we read Matthew a lot we read Luke a lot everyone loves the gospel of Luke people like John cuz it's it's about love it's about fleshly things but mark you think to yourself what is that all about so it was very helpful what else? Mhm. Yeah, on page what? Oh, okay, perfect. Mhm. Yeah, right. Which is why the German word for the divine service is, remember? "Gottesdienst," which means God's service. So even when you come to worship, you'll notice a a difference in emphasis between, um, this is why the liturgy is so brilliant. What the liturgy does is it just delivers the gifts. And there is a response, the hymn of praise, you respond to the Lord in thankfulness. That's why the Eucharist is called Thanksgiving. It is a meal where you're thankful to the Father for all that he's done. But most importantly, the main verbs that happen are from the Lord to you in the divine service, which is what he says right here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. Um, and the crucifixion. The whole yeah. Path. The whole passion, right. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. yeah I, yeah I, I think they were looking I, you're right I mean broadly speaking our story is Jesus story whatever Jesus does that's your story they were looking for a more narrow definition of what the story is um, which is why I said I think narrowly speaking it begins at 951 in Luke's gospel because remember he comes down he's on the mountain of transfiguration 929 and, they say, and, and Peter, James, and John say, whoa, he was speak. Luke says, he was speaking to them about his exodus, which was the story that Peterson used. And from that point on, 951, he comes down the mountain and he sets his face to Jerusalem, which means he sets his face towards his passion. Passion includes his death and his resurrection and his ascension, I would say. The ascension is forgotten in Lutheranism. The ascension, it's, it's huge, it's huge. But yeah, all of that is your story. All of that is your story. And all of that, in a very real way, is enacted and delivered on Sunday. You know? Mm-hmm. That's okay. If it comes back to you, ask it, okay? What, you remember what the biblical word for remembering is? Like what I do with the confirmation kids. Come on now. Faithfulness. Which is why it's fair to say the Lord doesn't actually remember your sins after he forgives them. Because that's not being faithful. If he says, I forgive you, that means he forgets. What he does remember is his mercy, because he's faithful to you in mercy. He doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want you to remain a sinner. So you come to confession, and this is you know oftentimes people are a little worried about whether or not, you know. Pastor Nelson's going to go home and tell Holly all about the sins he heard. Now, one, I know Holly, and she's, uh, she's pure of heart, so she has no desire like my wife. I mean, my wife, here's the thing, doesn't even, it doesn't matter if it's going to, she doesn't even, even want to know who I talked to during the day. <laughs> she doesn't want to know any of that. Because there's always the chance that, uh, you know, that, that she could say, oh, I saw you and there was so-and-so, which she would never do. She doesn't even want to know. Which is the mark of a good Christian wife and the mark of a good pastor's wife. There are many a pastor's wives who would love to know. (laughs) She doesn't. But the point is, you can rest assured that when you do confess and are forgiven, uh, faithfulness means you don't remember that. All you do remember is absolution. So the the person who came in and confessed and said, now let's talk about that when they were absolved. And I said, about what? There's nothing to talk about. Because it's completely gone. Okay, that's being faithful. Yeah. Do you think that like people want to talk about it agenda, that they want to talk about it because they want to know how to write it? Not always. Uh if they do, that's a different situation. Because uh, talking about your sins or talking about what's been confessed and absolved afterwards for the purpose of not making the same mistake twice, that's different than, um, it's different than talking about your sins because you can't quite let them go yet. And, and you and I know how that is. I mean, you go to the altar and you say, I'm so sorry for all of this. And it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to let it all go. But there, and that's the pa- that's that's the pastoral distinction that needs to be made. The one thing we're not is counselors. I'm just not good at. It. I mean, I'm just I'm not trained in it. But I can tell you uh, what the Lord says about sins and how He tells you to get through sins. That I do know. Um, and that's different than yeah. Let's talk about those sins because I know you really enjoyed it and hopefully you don't enjoy it next time. That's different. Yeah. And there is actually a place in the right, right after you've confessed specific sins where it says the pastor can give comfort from Holy Scripture, which is really what you're asking for. Comfort me because I don't want to do this again. I, and I think Bruzek does the same thing, and I'm sure Nelson does as well, I often move that to the end of the right. Because here's the thing, it breaks up the confession and the absolution. If I'm confessing, I want to be absolved right then. I want to be done with it. So there's no sense in me talking about how you can get through it until you've been absolved. So you absolve the person, you go through the entire rite, and then there's a time for a bit of, not counseling, but it's pastoral counsel, pastoral care. Okay? What else? Carol, you were going to say something. Right, right. Exactly. Jill Zempel was telling me that her, I think it's her great-grandfather was a Lutheran pastor, and they used to go visit him over the summers. They'd stay all day, or all all summer. And they had a big parsonage, but upstairs was his study, and also, like, a confessional was up there. And she said, we always knew that on Saturday afternoon, we weren't allowed to go to the front stairway because people were coming in and people were going up, and it wasn't our business to see who was going in. And it certainly wasn't our business to know what was going on. We knew they were coming for confession, and that's all we needed to know. No, that's right. <laughs> but here's know, the thing. I mean, I understand. Yeah. It's like, you know, but see, here's... Yeah. But I think you might, you might be at a different place than some other folks. For some other folks, it's... And this is, you know, it's true. It, it can be... Um, maybe not shameful, that's not the right word, but it can be, one, they're, one, they're scared by the whole idea of going to confession because it's so new. And then to add to the fact that, then to add to that, someone might see me who I know and then what are they going to think about me? That can be very terrifying for people. So what we try to do is create an environment where that's not. That's a non-issue. That's a non-issue. But then, you know, you go for a year and you say, I, I couldn't care less who sees me because I love it and I'm going. So... Right. You're submitting yourself to someone else's authority. Right. Which I think is so countercultural. Mm-hmm. And I think,
1: um, I don't know if it's a male or female thing, but I, it, it seems like my husband would have a harder time, mm-hmm. in
0: general, submitting to authority mm-hmm. than I would. I don't know. And it would be interesting to kind of see the numbers, like how many males come and how many females come. Yeah. I don't. I, to my knowledge, there are just as many as both. But you know, I don't know. That would be an interesting. would be an interesting, like, doctoral dissertation. How many women come and males come, and what does that mean, given the culture? It's an inter- interesting thought. Well, okay. Here's look at page one eighty-two. What I think he does that's so brilliant. Regardless of whether or not he gets the Mark priority or the Matthew priority right, that doesn't matter. What's important is he understands that it's Jesus' story, regardless of the Gospels, and that story actually then becomes your story. Okay, that actually becomes your story. Page 182, um, look at the second full paragraph. The distinctiveness of the form gospel is that it brings the centuries of Hebrew storytelling, God telling his story of creation and salvation, what we've talked about all along, through his people to the story of Jesus. The mature completion of all the stories in a way that is clearly revelation. That is, divine self-disclosure. This is not someone telling you about Jesus. It's Jesus telling you about himself. So even in the Gospels, you have to be able to read through it. This is not like Matthew's take on Jesus. This is Jesus telling telling us about himself in such a way that certain people can get it. Okay? Okay? We always ask, this is a very good kind of Christian question, a pastoral question, what's the Jesus that's proper to a given situation? That changes. You don't have, I just talked to someone on the phone yesterday, and I said, you don't have a generic Jesus who you, says, who, you says, who you say, this is what he does, and this is what he is, and you've got to fit yourself into that. So if you've got sins that are outside of Jesus, you've got to somehow find your way into the realm of Jesus. That's not how he works. There is a Jesus who finds you where you're at, and he applies himself to you, given your situation. Sometimes that's a Jesus who needs to walk down and have a cup of Starbucks with you. It's not outside the realm of Jesus. Sometimes he's a Jesus that needs to say, you're caught in sin, you need to stop. Sometimes he's a Jesus who needs to say, uh, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go, you are free. So the, the trick with Jesus is to see him as in all, through all, and really the creator and sustainer of all. And what he does then is he delivers himself to you where you're at. Which is precisely the reason that we talked about the catechumenate a few weeks back. The problem with catechesis, the way we do it now, is we say, here's Jesus, and we've got to make sure you can all fit into this circle. The way we should be doing it is saying, we have 48 people in this class who have 48 different issues, and 48 different needs, and 48 different desires, and maybe 400 different sins and Jesus can deliver the answer and forgiveness to each and all of those people where they're at. Okay, so that's the distinction. Yeah. Yeah, right. That we can use those to pray because Jesus isn't always healer to everybody. Right. And you ask, I mean, you ask people, even pastors, what they know about the names, and they don't know much, <laughs> which is sad because the names are everything. You could teach a whole class on the person. You could teach 10 weeks on the person of Jesus all from his names. You could, you could probably do a year. You could do whatever you wanted because you remember that with the name, with the name, you have the entire person. With the name, you have the entire person. And the name dwells in the temple. Solomon says, how "How will we know that you're here? The Lord says, I will put my name there. It's a presence. It's a thing. And then St. Paul says, you're a temple, which means within you dwells the name. So in confirmation this week, we're talking about prayer. And for two weeks, all we've talked about is learning the names and using the names well. In all your prayers, to just say, uh, you know, Well, let me tell you, to go, Learn to pray within the names. There are certain things you can ask for. There are certain things you can't. You can't ask to win the lottery. There's no name that says, Oh, million dollar winner. You can ask for discernment. You can ask for healing. You can ask for, if you've got sins, you pray to Jesus. If you're worried about being alone, you pray to Emmanuel. If, you've, if you're sick, you pray to the great physician. If you're worried about not having control of your life, you pray to the Lord. Learning the names and then using the names well, which is, exactly what we've, which is exactly what he's saying here. This is Jesus' story, and he gives himself to you wherever you're at. How does he do it? With his name. Because if you have the name, you have the full person. But if we just call him Lord, he is whatever our prayer would be. Right? Yeah, but, but part of spiritual maturity is to learn how to use the names well. I mean, they're, right, not in a
1: use as in a utilitarian
0: sense, but in. Uh. It is, in a sense, it's utilitarian, in a sense, because this is the name that you call upon to ask for something specific. That's why Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name. What he doesn't mean is, uh, pick one name and use it all you want. What he means is, ask it within my name. What is entailed in the name? That's a variety of things. In a sense, it's utilitarian, but that wouldn't be a gospel sense. (laughs) The gospel sense is, he's given you all of these names, Now enjoy using them. And realize that there's some things outside the name that you can't pray for. A guy in the new member class said, can I pray for a new car? Or No, not for a new car. Can I pray about what car to buy? You can pray for discernment. You can pray that you manage your family well. I mean, obviously, if you're going to buy a $60,000 car and you make $25,000 a year, you might want to pray that you manage your family well. But you don't pray, should I buy the Cadillac CTS or should I buy the new Toyota Whatever. That's not, not within his name. But you. But the other thing you can pray for is to be wise. <laughs> He's baptized your brain, so go decide what car you want. Okay? And that's not a not. I mean, I can, re, I can remember agonizing over what college to go to. Should it be this one or this one? And just praying and praying and praying. When I should have said, the Lord's baptized my brain. I'm not stupid. I know where I want to go. I should just. If it all lines up, I should just go. So, that's what what it's all about. I do think, and this needs to be parsed out, I do think the chief name is Jesus. Because it says in the scriptures, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That holds rank to a certain extent over every other name. But that's because that's the name that forgives your sins and forgiveness is what Jesus has to give. Okay? Yeah? Um, there, yeah there is a poster I've got a handout that I give to all the kids and it's a little, you're going to look at it and say I can't believe he, g-. It, it's just not me it's not something I'd give out but it actually has all the names on it so it's kind of cool and what? I, yeah I mean there's something you can find you could google the names of Jesus I'm sure it would come up <laughs> that's right I know how you feel about that. I know how you feel about that, Carol. But, but no, no, I mean, because just. Yeah, right. There are a lot, lot of names. Was the names right. So, that because got some Yeah.
1: There's,
0: yeah. Because there were a lot of handouts. hmm mm-hmm. But that's, I mean, that's what it is. So, for the eighth graders, I said, pick five names tonight, go home, and write a prayer using each of the five names. Just pick five. When would you use them and write the prayer? And then a proper prayer, you remember, is always to let Jesus have the first word. So you don't start, Oh, Jesus, give me this. The the collect, the prayer right after the Kyrie, that's right from Scripture, that form. You say the name. You tell the Lord what he's done. Remember, Lord, you've done this. You ask him what you need. Now please give me this, because you've done this. So that, what's the reason? What's the outcome? You don't pray just, for no reason. You pray for a reason. Grant this so that I may do this. And then you wrap it back up in the name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah. It's, it's. if you look at the collect, just look sometime in the hymnal. Almost all of them follow. There's some exceptions like during Advent and Lent where they change just a bit. But really the form is the name. Um, the rationale Is that how you spell it? What he's done, the petition, grant us this the reason, so that and wrap it back up in the name. Uh, I'll just put I and I, which means in nomine Jesu, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay? And this is right out of, and I can't remember the reference in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, it's actually more clear than it is here, but it's in the New Testament in Acts 4. Pastor Bruzek would usually teach, I think this is how he's taught his new member class when he does the Lord's Prayer. And I do it a little bit differently, but I think he uses Acts 4 as the chief example of the collect. I've actually found one in the Old Testament that's more clear than this. It follows the collect form a little bit more rigidly. But this is the way the collects of the church work. O great physician, you heal people throughout all generations, therefore grant healing to so-and-so, that they may be restored to health and live to your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And that's how all your prayers should work. I mean, if you can begin to pray one in the name, choose the right name, and in this collect form, uh, you'll be praying more in the way of Jesus than ever before. Yeah? It runs almost the same structure. It, you know, the Lord's Prayer is, it has some tweaks to it, but it's almost the same structure. You call upon the name, Our Father Who Art in Heaven, Um, And then you ask, you tell the Lord what he's done, and you ask what you want, and wrap it up in the name. For thine is the kingdom. Thine, you, Lord, are the kingdom. But the, the Lord's Prayer is the chief prayer because, one, Jesus gives it. And two, and this is actually more important, every petition is fulfilled by Christ. Every petition. Every petition is fulfilled by Jesus. And the center of the Lord's Prayer, then, is... This is just the the middle two petitions. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us. Only two petitions that are joined with the conjunction, and... Okay? Only two petitions that are joined by that. What's the bread that forgives your sins? The Holy Supper. Which is why this and... This I told the 8th graders today. If they want to get an A with Bruzek, they need to know this. The and is called an ep-exegetical chi. Chi means and in Greek. Ep-exegetical chi just means that is. That is to say. So what the Lord's Prayer reads is, Give us this day our daily bread. That is to say the bread that forgives our sins. That's what the Lord's Prayer asks in the original Greek. So it's not primarily, even as the Catechism says, I hate to say this, forgive me, it's not bread as in he gave you shoes and a house and a home and warm air and you know provided food for your table. That's true, but that's not the first thing. You have to start with the Lord where he gives his sacramental gifts, where he gives himself. So the bread that forgives your sins in the Lord's Prayer is the Eucharist. This is a Eucharistic prayer. And every petition is fulfilled in Jesus. How is the name of the Lord made holy? Not by you, not by me, but by Jesus. He's the only one who doesn't sin. Who does the will of the Father? Jesus. Who's the kingdom come to earth? Jesus. Who gives us daily bread that forgives us? Jesus. Who's tempted on our behalf? Jesus. Who delivers us from evil? Jesus. Every petition is fulfilled by Christ. That's why the Lord's Prayer is the chief prayer. It does, in a gospel sort of way outrank the other prayers. If you don't know what to pray, you pray the Lord's Prayer. Okay, yeah? That's a very good question. What was his, what was his name on earth? Um, Yeshua is the Hebrew form of Jesus. Yeshua is Joshua in the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew way of saying the name Jesus. He is given a name on earth, and that's the name Jesus. That's why when the, when the angel says to him, you will call his name Jesus. That's the name that his parents knew him by, little Jesus. That's what they would have called him. Yes. Yeah, granted, there's different inflections in Greek, but that's the name. Um, and as I say to the 8th graders, his last name isn't Christ. It's not Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and Jesus Christ. Okay? You know? Like they had on their house in 1st you know, century Palestine, the Christ residence. That's not what it said. Established, you know, 33 A.D. That's not what it read. His, he's called the Christ because he's anointed. Okay? In the Old Testament, Jesus is often the way it's pronounced, like, kind of with a, with a Latin understanding. And, but, yeah, Jesus is his name. And, and whether it's Yeshua or Jesus, Jesus, it all means the exact same thing. What? Yes, exactly. At, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly I got a lot of sins. I use Jesus all the time. Yeah, I'm um, talking about, like, in general to, like, us. Yeah. What would you think that we would use as the most common names? Most common names. I don't know if I can give you all ten. I can give you some. Great physician. Okay. Jesus. I'll talk about these in just a second. Lord, Emmanuel, Word, Light, Redeemer, Sanctifier, Sanctifier. Also, um, uh, let's see, king of angels, he is the head. O lord, of Saba- lord of Sabaoth is the proper way of saying this. That just means lord of the legions, lord of the angels, king of the angels. Um, that's, that's ten, isn't it? What's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rabbi? I mean, just you can, and you, can, you can look at sheets, and some are more broad than others. I mean, the one that I gave the kids probably had 300 names on it. I'm just trying to think of what I use often. Great physician, you know, when you're sick. Uh, well, here's, along with that, suffering servant. Because, you know, when you pray for someone who's sick, the proper prayer is that they're joined to the sufferings of Christ. That's what you want then you know you're a Christian. Yeah, Lamb of God. If you've got sins, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb of God. Jesus. You call His name Jesus because He'll save you from your sins. If you've got sins, you pray to Jesus. If you, uh, if you don't know who's in charge in your life, you pray to the Lord. That means he's, he's the one that's running the show. Emmanuel. If you're afraid about being alone, Emmanuel, God with us. If you don't know what to say... You pray to the word or I would even say here I would even say you pray to the word if you're worried about your image because the word becomes flesh light if you're scared of the darkness that could be the darkness of sin the darkness of the night darkness is where the devil ra- or where the devil runs so you always pray for the light rabbi if you want to be taught redeemer if you if you got a lot of sins creator if you want to look at how the lord's ordered everything in your life sanctifier if you don't think you're holy King of the angels. When you travel, you pray to the king of the angels. Son of God. Son of God. Yeah, I mean, you, you can just These go on and on and on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's not, call, it's not wrong to pray to the Father. Now, you're, you're, addressing, you're addressing someone else, but you're always doing that through Jesus. That's why the proper prayer always ends through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what happens is, in every prayer, even when you pray, oh, O Emmanuel, you're praying to Jesus and he's taking it to the Father. Um, that's why the, the Lenten versicles for evening prayer say, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He's your advocate. So you, you've got to get to the Father and Jesus takes him there. Whether you pray to the Father through Jesus or whether you pray to Jesus, it's all going to the Father. Yeah. But this is what Jesus does. This is the way he works. Um, And all of that is centered around his passion. Because in his passion, what he wants to give you are the fruits of his passion. That's what he wants. Which is a body broken and blood outpoured. And a body then that walks out of the tomb. And a body that ascends up to be with Jesus. That's what he's got for you. Okay? Yeah, go ahead. Right. That's why Luther says a 7-year-old understands the faith better than an adult. He does. I mean, he's so far advanced. Yeah. I mean, he's thinking about things I didn't think about Yeah. Right. I didn't I didn't either actually. And I I I'm being very serious. And I grew up as a Lutheran, but I didn't I couldn't have told you why the names were I could never have told you why the names were significant. Never. I just didn't know. So, yeah. Well, we do you know when we become you know when we love to pray to the Holy Spirit? Is it Pentecost. <laughs> That's the one Sunday in the church year where we say, Whoa, we should probably pray to the Holy Spirit. And so we sing hymns, O Comforter of Precious Worth, which I love to sing to my wife as we get in bed and I'm freezing and I say, Please get off the comforter. And she says, I'm I'm sweating, and I say, I just start to sing, O Comforter of Precious Worth. You think I'm joking? Lord keep us steadfast in your word, Stanza three, O comforter of precious worth. <laughs> it is. It isn't. What you. What you got? It's all going to get. It's all going to get to the Father. But you. Yeah. You can. Because the Holy Spirit brings you. I mean, He's. He's the Paraclete. He's the Comforter. He's the one who's always present in you. So you're asking him for different things, but all of it goes to the Father. The Father is. I mean, uh, there is. There is distinction in the Godhead and yet there's there's nothing there's no subordination <laughs> no one is less than someone else but there's distinction you go to you go to the father with different things than you go to the son with but all of them eventually get back to the father and they're all through jesus really the spirit's job is to bring you to christ okay which is why you know the great jesus prayers where people are you know at a at a at a Billy Graham you know event they they pray that the spirit brings them to jesus but you have to know Jesus before you know this. I mean the Spirit brings you and then he enlightens you to the entire Godhead. So to pray to the Spirit's not wrong, just wrap it up in the name of Jesus. Yeah. I always feel like the Holy Spirit is like the you know, basically like behind the scenes. Yeah. Because like, you know, I don't know always know what to pray and I just kinda chunk it up that the Holy Spirit knows what Right. What's in there and what needs to happen. Yeah. Yes, right. Goes to the... Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean... He, no, no, not at all. I mean, that's why the scriptures say, even when you don't know what to say, the spirit cries out with groans within you. That's what he does. Um, but I, like I said, and I say, this to, I say this to a lot of people, when you... I mean, there are times when you actually don't know what to say. There will be experiences where you don't know what to say. Um, and at that time, the most appropriate prayer is the Lord's Prayer that's it, and just keep saying it. I mean, there's something, there's kind of an old Lutheran tradition that redundancy, and not in the sense of, uh, well, just redundancy even with prayers. To say the Lord's Prayer over and over again with some sort of a work, I frankly completely disagree. Because the Lord says, do this. He doesn't say, if you pray, pray like this. He says, when you pray. He just presumes you're going to pray. And that's the prayer you use. And so even to say that, you know, 10 or 15 times in great distress, there's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes your prayers are very broad. <laughs> you know, too specific can be tough at times, or maybe not best. But I'll tell you what, you have a kid in the ER and they're about to put a tube down his throat. Your prayer is specific. Don't let that hurt. I mean, that that's what you pray. So, thankfully, um, it doesn't mean you can be sloppy, but it means... If you're a Christian and you use the names, even if it's maybe not the best prayer in the world, Jesus knows how to pray. And he'll, he'll take care of it. Yeah. Keep going. Keep, this, is, this is great. Right. I don't remember. Oh, babble. Is that, mm-hmm. that, that the, the, when Jesus was talking about the Pharisees standing on the corners? Or right. The usually, I don't know about that. I, there is I mean on, on Ash Wednesday, usually we read the text about don't look like you've been fasting and don't babble on the corner like the Pharisees. Which is why Jesus says go in your closet, shut the door and say your prayer and pray to your father who is in heaven in silence or in secret. Um, I don't think that I don't think that's a you may be thinking of something else. I'm thinking of... Also, in the Old Testament, though, um, Oh, I, don't, I, I would say the Psalms maybe, but um,
1: do you know where it says, um, like, I'm through hearing all your prayers. Mm-hmm. What I want is a broken and contrite heart. Right. I mean, it's
0: kind of like enough already with... But, but I, I know yes. what you're talking about. because that, that's, a, that's a big He problem. goes on to, on to say a broken and a contrite heart. Example. Yeah. I don't know if it's absolutely true. And I'm The the point and I think that's true. I mean, but see the difference is you're not pharisees. And I don't mean I don't mean that you're not living in 1st century Palestine. What I mean is pharisees are not concerned about um the person of Christ dwelling in their flesh. It's there's no connection to Jesus. So for them it's completely an outward action that is in a sense, meant to gain favor on the Lord's behalf and favor on the behalf of those walking by, which is why they did it on the street corners. That's not that's not your issue. If that's your issue, then we'll talk about it. And that's, and I don't think that's your issue. Of praying, like Samuel's mother prayed for many, many years. Right. Her son. So her response was to give him to the Lord and to give him to the Lord. Right. So, uh, I, yeah. It, and it doesn't even, here's the other thing it doesn't mean. It also doesn't mean you can only pray the Lord's Prayer, let's just take that as an example, as long as you can be cognizant of the fact that you're praying the Lord's Prayer. So, for instance, some people say, well, once I lose track and I start thinking about other stuff, I need to stop. Even Luther, Luther has a challenge in one of his writings where he says, I challenge anyone to pray the whole Lord's Prayer and not think about something else. <laughs> he, has a, he has a letter to Peter the Bar- I think it's Peter the Barber, real barber, haircut guy, on how to pray. Peter says to him, "Is Luther sitting in the chair, how do I pray? He writes to Peter the barber, here's how you pray. And he says in there, yeah, and I challenge you to try to get through the Lord's Prayer without not thinking about something else. It just can't happen. Yeah, it is. Because, you know, we say the Lord's Prayer all the time, and you're thinking about everything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you're with the Lord in heaven, you'll only be thinking about that. But right now, you're thinking about everything else. You know? So that's just it, it sounds trite, but that's just being human. Yeah. Right. Issues, and when you do come back, like in your mind so and then when you do come back you remember that the Lord's Exactly. Exactly. That was to you. Yeah. Yes. And in the end, I always have to say, Forgive me for not. Yeah, me. right. Because here's the thing that happens to me. I think about it, and in thinking about it, I forget about the Lord's Prayer. I'm thinking about the challenge and not the Lord's Prayer. So I completely understand. But that doesn't mean you stop saying it. And there's something uh, very real and very helpful about just saying it over and over and over again. So what else? Do you agree where he says here on page 188 that death is not natural? Is death the way things are supposed to be? Not at all. But if you think about the world, and even fellow Christians, how often people think that death is just part of life. The very first funeral, I was a vicar, actually. And they didn't want to have it in the church; they wanted it at the cemetery. And I can remember it was—they wanted an open casket funeral at the cemetery by the graveside. And it was in August. I mean, it was just so hot. We were dripping, we were sweating, you know. And there were there were 40 or 50 people there. And I can remember when the guy called me to tell me about the death of his sister. It was. I said, how are you guys doing? Well, it's okay. This is just part of life. People just die. People die. It's all okay. And you could tell he was in complete denial about it. She was 52 years old, dropped out of a heart attack. They didn't find her for a couple days. They didn't know about it. And, And he said, this is just part of life. And so the opening line of my sermon was, death is not natural. And I think it stunned them. And that's about as much law as you could ever give at a funeral. Because the law is resting right there in the casket. I mean, that's the law. We die. But it's always helpful to think about that. You are not meant to die. That's not the way things are supposed to be. And even though hospitals will never go out of business, um, every time a person dies, something utterly unnatural happens. But, but the, the, the comfort is that the Lord actually has an answer to that. He doesn't just leave you in the grave. He actually brings you up and gives you life again. So the body you once had, it's going to be that body plus. It's going to be an Eden-type body, which means you're not going to die forever. Um, And that should come as great comfort, which is why the resurrection is very important. It is very important, because that means you actually get your body back. The body that once rested in a hospital or dropped dead in your house at 40, like we heard a couple weeks back, that body will be raised up again. So it's not natural. You're supposed to have immortality. And someday we will. So that's the, that's the good news. Heaven is Eden plus. Everything that went wrong in this life. Think about you know people that were sick. Think about people that were dying. That is not the way things are supposed to be, and it's not the way that things will be. They will be utterly healthy. They will be perfect. They'll be better than they were before. Like Adam and Eve. You can imagine what Adam and Eve looked like and thought like and acted like. That's what you'll have. That's great. I mean, that, there's no... Um, you know, to think about people who have died, at least in my own life, who I didn't know and wish I could have known. I'm not talking like Luther. and I'm not talking even... These are just family. To know that I'll be able to go up and actually touch those people. That's an extraordinarily huge gift. It would be okay without that, but it's so much better with that. So...
1: Mm-hmm. Was not where they dug it. And I remember calling, I'm call the person
0: that's in charge of something. Is it Ray? No. Like the it, sexton. sexton. Yeah. I
1: called the sexton. And I said, I'm just really confused. That's not where I thought it was going. And, you know, and he goes, Well, he's facing east. Mm-hmm. But it was, I've never met this man. I mean, he's manager of the cemetery. But he was so matter of fact. And he goes, So when he sits, and, eat. and I can't tell you how much we had trouble with just getting the stones. So it was just kind of like I got to that point and it was, you know, dark in my house and I'm like trying to advocate for my mother because the stones and in the right place, wrong place. Right. And he goes, When he sits up and he's going to be facing east. And I said, You're talking about the second coming. And he goes,
0: Exactly. Yeah. He has to face east. Right. And I'm like,
1: I knew that. <laughs> 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 I knew that. I knew that. <laughs> it was just so right. refreshing that even in you know, you would like to think that all people who are a part
0: of that mm-hmm. part of your life, your death, and mm-hmm.
1: your cemetery
0: and your stone,
1: and but you know, when I said that to Bruce, he goes,
0: he knows the. That's right. That's exactly right. And you know what happened to Eifert? They accidentally put the stone the wrong way. And it was a it was a huge mistake on the cemetery's part they didn 't know a different cemetery than where your father was at and they they I think this out happened. They put it in and put it in the wrong way, and Anita found out, and of course Anita knows the way he should be facing. so we went back out and had a when I was a vicar I wasn't here when he died, but when I was a vicar, went back out, they moved the stone, and we had a rededication of the stone facing east now mm-hmm. so No, I, I, that'll, she'll sit she'll up correctly, I'm sure. Because <laughs> when the Lord comes back, he's going to come back from the east. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all, there are different directions in the scriptures that have different meanings. But we know, but from the scriptures, you know, uh, the, the Lord will return from the east. And that's why, like in church, church should be facing the east. So when you're sitting in church and the Lord comes back, you should be able to look up and there's the Lord. Which is also why when your dad, when we had his funeral... He faces the way, even in church in the casket, the way that he was in church. He faces east. He faces the altar. You face the other way. A pastor's head is at the altar facing the other way. See the difference? A pastor and a, a parishioner, you always face the way you face the entire, your entire life. Parishioners sit up and they see, they see the altar. That was their seat. Pastors sit up and they see the congregation. And, and historically, I think, suicides were actually sideways. They actually put the casket sideways. I think because it was, you know, um, it wasn't necessarily in the way of Jesus, but there was, still, there was always hope. And, and there was great comfort and hope in that, but I think that's the way they did it. I think they put those sideways, and everyone else faced the way that they usually faced in church. Yeah. Yeah. So a good a good a good sexton of a cemetery will say to you when you go to bury someone, make sure that the headstone you know that when they sit up they're facing east because that's the that's the way the Lord's going to come, and it's this is not I mean we're not messing around that person will Bob will sit up out of his grave, he will sit up, and he will see the Lord coming back. So that's a, that'll be a that'll be a great day couldn't. Come, you know, some days you wake up and you say, that couldn't come soon enough. Wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And some days, you know, you say, it could wait a little while. Things are okay. <laughs> but um, whenever it comes. It's funny to read, it's funny to read guys who are um, very good theologians, who are either getting older in life or have now died, who said things 30 or 40 years ago like, we might see the second coming of the Lord. That was a great hope for them. And they didn't see it. They will see it, but they didn't see it. Um, and their hope, you know, was probably that they wouldn't die in the flesh, which is a, is a live hope. You don't want to suffer. Um, but they didn't see that, and they will. And so now the younger generation, we begin to say, maybe the Lord will come back before we die. Who knows? We'll have to see. Still be facing the right way. Still be the right way. He'll turn you around. If you're not looking the right way, he'll turn you around. You'll, you'll, you'll know he's coming, and uh, he'll face you up the right way. But that should be that should come as great comfort. No, I, his body was actually the right way. I think the headstone was facing the wrong direction. Yeah, I think that's how, I think that's how it was. I don't remember the full story. I just remember we went out and we did a read. Sure no, I don't. I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure. And plus, at <laughs> that kind of thing, there were probably forty pastors there who wouldn't let it happen. He can turn him around. That's right. He can turn him around. Yeah. That. Well. <laughs> that's a. He can. He can fix that too. I was. You know. I was actually for a second trying to figure out exactly what. You, I didn't know if you were mocking. Yeah. I was like. I thought she was mocking for a second. And I'm thinking to myself. How am I going to undo this? Luckily, you saved yourself. Yeah. Uh, And
1: don't bring me please. (laughs) But uh, I just think of the valley of dry bones, and how God, right before Ezekiel's eyes, it says, you know, He added the sinew and Mm -hmm. the muscle and the skin, and all of a sudden they had armor on and they were instantly a marching army of real human beings. Right. Right. You know,
0: the, the cremated, the people who die in fires in their homes. I mean, He'll fix that. Okay. Now, some, there, there has actually been a book written by a Missouri Synod Lutheran um, where he says cremation is wrong. I, I don't agree. I do, however, think having a body in the casket um, and then putting a body into the earth follows more closely in the way of Jesus. That doesn't mean it's wrong to cremate. But what Jesus does is his body goes into the ground, into the earth. Um, and to have that image is actually a great picture of the resurrection. But here's the thing. The Lord can put the ashes back together and make a body out of it. And that's what he does. That Even in the psalm today, you know, how he deals with the ash heap. He makes something wonderful out of it. So there's no there's no worry. It's not sinful. It's not wrong. You just have to say to yourself, and I've, I've actually talked to people about this who we're at the point where they said, I want to be cremated. And now, just in kind of thinking through the implications of a picture of the resurrection, have said, yeah, I think I want to be buried. Both are okay. It's okay. So, anything else? All right. So, the past, this is, we're coming up now in a week and a half on really the greatest week in the church year. This is what it's all about. And, and you know, look a little bit. It, this is just a little heads up. Look a little bit because we may have some published time. And I don't know. I'm telling you this because you guys are kind of on the end. You know what's going on. We may actually have some published times for confession during Holy Week. So just be thinking about that. There's no force. There's no press. I'm just letting you know. If you have ever thought, yeah, I might want to come, you might see some published times for that. Um, And where that's going to happen or what time it's going to happen, I don't even know. We've just batted around the idea about during Holy Week offering, you know, from 5 to 7 on each night, a pastor will be present to hear confession. So keep that in your mind. Look for it. Um, And if it doesn't happen, if you wanted to come, you could still come. But, you know, published times are not always bad. Okay? Anything else? Yes, you can.
1: Yeah, And come along. We'll be 11:30. We'll be back the
0: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. For, for next week, um, why don't you, do you guys meet next week? You probably do one more time. You won't meet the following week, I don't think. Look at 194, and why don't you go through the top of page 212. Is that six to 18 pages? Is that okay? That'll get you through a full section. Um, it actually starts there with the Eucharist on page 200. So why don't you go 194 through 212? Okay.